0: And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast to listen to. Understood explains. Search for Understood explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression. This podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to new parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, on our episode, we are joined by Rachel Brousseau, a licensed marriage and family therapist, registered drama therapist, drama therapy board certified trainer, and perinatal mental health certified therapist. She has a private practice in Burbank, where she specializes in helping highly sensitive mothers throughout their motherhood journey. That's me too. And uh, oh, that I am a highly sensitive mother too. And she is the co founder of the Creative Center for Motherhood, supporting moms through the use of group creative expression. Rachel has presented for Maternal Mental Health Now, the North American Drama Therapy Association, USC School of Social Work, Cal State LA, and Heartbeat. She is also a Parent and Me class facilitator and teaches the Drama Therapy Institute of Los Angeles. Through her personal experience, Rachel is driven to help mothers feel connected so that they never have to feel alone and I am so grateful to you, Rachel, for being here with us
1: today. I'm happy to hear from you and thankful that you're here to share your experience. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about this.
0: Yeah, um, I really have been wanting to talk to you for a while, and I think as we were chatting before we started recording that it, it is fairly rare to hear from of, about disability from a perinatal mental health perspective, and um, so yeah, I would I would love for you to start wherever you feel comfortable with your journey.
1: Sure. So I'll take it back, um, way back. Uh, <laughs> so I was diagnosed with a very rare autoimmune disease called dermatomyositis when I was five years old. At the time, it was one in one million people with a diagnosis and um, it progressed very quickly. So I was a child that was in kindergarten, running around, doing my thing. And then within two weeks uh, I couldn't walk. I had muscle weakness. Um, I actually just, I don't remember ever running in my life. Like, I don't know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was in the hospital the doctor, luckily I got, um, diagnosed properly from the beginning, um, mm. because a lot of people don't and their muscles atrophy and then they're bedridden and, oh. um, it's, yeah, it's very, um, it's very difficult. I would fall a lot. I would mm. fall down staircases a lot. My legs oh. would just give out. And so, um, there was no telling when, something would happen. And so mm-hmm. there was that like surprise and that I'm just not knowing. Sure. Sometimes I was in a wheelchair, sometimes I wasn't. I'm I couldn't walk long distances, and so we had a disability placard and when I wasn't in a wheelchair, I would get a lot of stares and judgment mm-hmm. and why are you using this space when somebody that needs it mm-hmm. is actually using it?
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. And so there was a lot of that and it would get better and then Mm -hmm. it would get worse. And it was like a yearly seasonal progression. And so in March, I would just plummet and then I would start to get better and better. And then I would plummet again. So there was that, but I still played sports, but I learned how to adapt. So I played little league baseball and Mm my adaptation was to just try to hit the ball as far as i could so that i could power walk to the bases so that was kind of my first journey into that adaptation and and i was also involved with theater and so my first performance i couldn't go upstairs still a problem that i have now and so what the teacher did was they actually had my set pieces off stage down to give it like depth. So I was Timothy Bear learns to read. I was Mrs. Bear and the woods were behind like on the stage and mother bear's house was downstage and off the stage. So I could still be involved and be a part of this performance, which just sparked my love for theater as well. And the healing, the healing that theater can have as well, still being a part of a community, feeling accepted. Mm -hmm. And then as I grew older and I went off on my own, I wasn't on my parents' insurance anymore. I couldn't get insurance. Well, like
0: just total denial. Total denial.
1: Unless I was working for some kind of corporate business because I would try and try and try. And uh, one of the medications that I had been on um, was a medication called methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy. And what I didn't realize until I started like finding out more about why I was getting all these denials was that if you've ever been on this medication, you are an automatic denial. Oh, And so this was before um, the affordable care act. And that was one of the things I was talking to one of the people on the line, trying to get insurance. And I was like, so like healthcare should be a human right. Mm-hmm. So I'm being denied a human right for medical care that I need, and he was like, Well, you know, hopefully that'll change with the new administration, and things will be able to change in the meantime. Don't know what to tell you, yeah. And so, what I ended up finding out from some colleagues that I was working with was if you go to a teaching hospital, they oftentimes have grants that you can apply for to help pay your medical bills. Oh, wow. So I would go to a hospital that I knew I could apply for help with these hospitals. Also, like I had other problems that would come up from this. So I had calcinosis and I had, they had to like squeeze it out of my hip. So it's like, um, a, a lump, oh, but okay. it's like a, it's almost like a toothpaste mm-hmm. type of filling filling that's mm-hmm. in your body so it's excess calcium. And so what they, what they did was if I agreed to have 30 doctors learning how to do this med students, that they would do the procedure for free, but I had to finish the procedure at my house. Like they would start squeezing it out. They would bandage it up, but then I would have to keep squeezing out the calcinosis at home. So I'm, um, these were kind of the negotiations that I made with the medical system. Wow, um, yeah, you
0: had to get really creative just to, to get yeah. this basic need met.
1: Basic needs. Yeah. And fundamental I need, need. Yeah. Right. Right. Human, human rights needs. yes, yeah, right. right. And the thing that, you know, the positive out of that is I really learned how to advocate for myself and I really learned some of the tricks of the system. Mm-hmm which I think has, has served me well, um, not just in my life now, but with my clients who I'm helping to support and advocate for their needs, just on a wide range of level, right? Sure, like sure. asking for help from their partner to mm-hmm. navigating the medical system mm-hmm. with their own needs as well. So yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where the journey began.
0: So if I can just ask a follow-up question. Yeah. So the 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 primary thing you deal with, is it muscle loss or muscle weakness or muscles in in general?
1: Right. So muscle weakness, and I don't have muscle atrophy because I've worked to move my body. But if I don't move my body, then that's, that's when things will also get worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm the way that the immune system works for me is that when the immune system is attacked, it attacks the muscles.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And so then the muscles right. shut down. Oh, okay. So that that's what uh, when you're having
0: a harder time doing any kind of walking or like you were saying there mm-hmm. would be times where you'd be in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, okay.
1: And also with that, I was on heavy doses of steroids as a mm-hmm. child. And mm-hmm. so um, I developed cataracts, which then later... Um, led to retina detachment, led to glaucoma. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of eye stuff as well as a result of this.
0: the, the secondary to the medication, not exactly necessarily part of the, the autoimmune condition.
1: Exactly. Okay. A- and um because I was on so much steroids for so long, my body now rejects steroids. Mm. So if I get like bronchitis or something where you need steroids, I have to weigh the pros and cons of is this worth trying to get this better more quickly for my muscles to start to shut down? So it's like, do I risk like even being able to get on an examination table, trying to climb up it, if this is a medicine that's going to be rejected in my body
0: as well? Yeah, that's that's a lot to deal with. So uh... this podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted? The Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the Era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts
2: or wherever you get your pods. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first time or second time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. What
0: would be kind of a routine decision for somebody else if they're sick has to really be like you have to do the math on it and weigh that out. So uh, I'm really interested to know you know, how this impacted you in your journey through pregnancy and postpartum as well. So I imagine there's a whole other host of things you had to deal with.
1: Yeah. So I was doing really, really well. Um, And so I, I asked my doctor, what are your thoughts? Like, I, I never really thought about getting pregnant, because when I was quite young, I overheard a doctor saying to my parents, she's not going to be able to have children. I think I was like eight years old when I overheard a doctor say this. And so I then rejected parenthood just entirely. I was like, it's not something I want. I'm never going to be able to do it. And so by the time I was in my mid twenties, I think I was doing really well, which is not uncommon. A lot of times things start to stable out and and people start to do well. Um, in mid to late adolescence. So it was doing really well. And so in my 30s, my husband and I were thinking, maybe we can reconsider this. Maybe this is something that's possible. So I talked to my doctor and she's like, yeah, it's possible. We don't have any research. So we have no idea how your body will react to being pregnant, how it will react in the postnatal period there just was nothing, so I didn't know if the body would shut down. I didn't know if the body would be fine because this is so rare. There's nothing out there about right. it. Right. And she's like, "Your your levels of that we test to see how the enzymes are in the muscles and that sort of thing." She's like, "They're fine." So if you wanted to um, try to get pregnant, this is the time to do it. So we started trying, and I got pregnant after eight months. And, um, it was fine at the beginning, like the first, I mean, besides nausea through like my second trimester, it was, like it <laughs> was, it was a good pregnancy. My body was fine. I was healthy. Baby was healthy. Everything was good. And then my third tri- trimester hit and I was working at a hospital at the time and I started falling and I fell seven times in my third trimester. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. Because with the ligament stretching <clears throat> as well, like my hip <clears throat> flexors are the things that are really affected. It started to get really difficult to go upstairs to the partial hospitalization program. So I worked in an inpatient residential and partial. Oh, okay. And I worked with eating disorders at the time, people struggling with eating disorders. And so I would have to carry my tray of food upstairs to eat with the people that I was working with and Mm -hmm. I could barely do it. Like I'm like grasping onto the tray while holding on to the handle and to go up the stairs. And I didn't want my, I didn't want my patients to worry about me
3: Yeah,
1: and I didn't want to disclose what was going on. And then I fell in front of all the patients and my OBGYN was like, okay, it's time for disability. Do you want to Mm -hmm. go on disability? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes. I mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. So this was at 36 weeks, which we could go on in California. We can go on disability four weeks before. And so, you know, that was really hard because there was always that fear, that fear right. of falling. And so then I gave birth and I started to have a lot of scary thoughts around falling. Sure. Around dropping the baby because I was going to, I could possibly fall. I'm around getting off the floor Mm because I could barely do it during pregnancy in that third trimester about just getting out of the rocking chair. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: So I would have to hold onto the baby very tightly while I Mm -hmm. pushed on the side of the chair Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. try to maneuver myself out of the chair. My husband was able to take five weeks off, which was great. But after that, it got, you know, really scary because I was like, I don't know, like he could take the baby and I could push up, but you know, otherwise it was really difficult. I would go to lactation support group and everything was chair floors or chairs on the floor. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. like, I couldn't just squat and pick the baby up. I would have to like, Try to bend over as best as I could, and get the baby that way. And of course, the lactation consultants were like, "Let us help you. We've got this." Um, and so that was that was very helpful. But I'm, but I started to have obsessive compulsive behaviors around breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And so I was is, uh, you were um, breastfeeding from the beginning from the beginning. Uh-huh. Yes, it took a while for my milk to come in, and so that was really difficult for mm-hmm. me. And so when I started breastfeeding, it I was like, no, I don't want to use formula. No, I have to give my baby immunity because I don't mm-hmm. want her to get what I have. And so there was like a lot of those obsessive thoughts around my baby getting sick, my baby sure. inheriting my own illness. And so I also, of course, because it was new motherhood, I was exhausted. Yeah. I didn't know if it was my disease, if it was motherhood, new motherhood, I couldn't differentiate whether it was postpartum depression or not. Like Mm. I was just so exhausted. And so I kept asking my doctor, like, is this normal? Is this Mm -hmm. not? And she never mentioned postpartum depression or anxiety. Um, She was just like, you need to get more sleep." Or you're going to have to stop breastfeeding because you're going to have to go on medication. You're going to have to, you're going to need to like start exercising as well, mm-hmm. so that your body doesn't completely shut down. And she was like, "Yoga is good. Try to get more sleep would be good." Um, meanwhile, I'm still obsessing right. right over the breastfeeding. And so I was like, "Okay, I will, I will start yoga." So my husband looked up. Yoga places for me for postnatal yoga. And he found a place in Los Angeles where it's only mommy and me yoga. Mm -hmm. That's like the whole yoga studio is just mommy and me. So I drove out there. I was probably about, I want to say, two or three months postnatal at this point. I got there and it was a huge staircase going up to the yoga studio. Mm -hmm. At this point, stairs were almost impossible for me. I called the studio to see if maybe there was a hidden elevator somewhere. Nobody answered. I kept thinking like, I have to do this. I have to do this. So I got my daughter with her carrier and just one step at a time, holding her went up to the studio and the yoga studio owner was at the desk. And I said, you know, I'm just curious, like, I tried to call, but do you have an elevator? And she was like, you just need to get in shape. (gasps) Oh, no. Yeah. No, you shouldn't say that to anybody, let alone. Right. And I said, actually, I have a disability and it's really difficult for me to go upstairs. I don't know how safe this was for me to actually go upstairs with the baby Mm -hmm. and carrying this heavy carrier. And Mm -hmm. so I did the yoga class. I was like holding back tears and, and, oh, the other thing she said was, well, you should have called so somebody could help you. And I said, I did. And nobody answered. And so going to my car, I went down step-by-step going down is not as difficult as going up. It's a Mm -hmm. different set of muscles, Mm -hmm. but I was still very scared of falling. Of course. And we, so I- at
0: this point, like the intrusive thoughts of and fear of falling are still present. Also the intrusive thoughts, obsessive thoughts about nursing.
1: Okay. Yes. Yes. And I got in my car and I broke down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was hysterical. I called my husband and I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I need to get better. Like I can't, like, I just felt like, you know, my world had been shattered. And so I looked up another yoga studio that had mommy and me classes. I got there and flight of
4: stairs. Wow.
1: Yeah. And the good news around that is that the studio owner was waiting for me
4: mm-hmm.
1: and she carried my daughter up the stairs and then I took the stairs one by one. And again, I I went and I rejected it after I left because I mm-hmm. was like, what is happening here? Like why right. is nothing accessible? Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm being shut out of spaces. I'm mm-hmm. feeling unwelcome. I'm I'm mm-hmm. being I'm being told through the spaces that that I can't be here. I'm not mm-hmm. allowed to be a part of this community. Right. And so my daughter had to go to physical therapy because she had torticollis.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And as we were li- leaving, and I'm pushing the stroller, I fell.
5: Oh gosh.
1: Right. So the what?
0: Uh, obviously, it's difficult because the intrusive thoughts are a- about something that has happened and could happen. And then it does happen. And Lynn, this time of
3: year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.
4: Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple to digest way for the last decade.
0: does that did that just reaffirm for you all of that fear?
4: Yeah,
1: it did. And the thing that I and I couldn't get up. Mm-hmm. So I the stroller is down. Luckily, of course she was strapped in. So she was fine. She was just chilling and I had a very calm baby. Um I don't know if it was cuz I meditated. I was teaching meditation class every single day in my pregnancy, but she was just like the most chill cool baby. <laughs> And so I basically did what I've done in the past, which is just basically tried to crawl up my own legs with my hands, mm-hmm. um, using that to just try to get me up. And so yeah, it was really difficult because it's like, what if your intrusive thoughts are n- not irrational, right? And so how do we do? How do we? How do we deal with that? How do we manage those kind of thoughts? And so you know that. I had those, those core beliefs also that were very much ingrained in me on like, you're being too sensitive about all of this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're um, you got to push through, you know, you're not, you're not strong enough to do all of this to a point where at one moment in, in my house, it was just me and the baby. And I had thoughts about what if I just got in my car and left? Yeah, And I had a very sick dog too. So he would oh. bark 24 seven. Oh no. So I'm a highly sensitive person mm-hmm. with overstimulation and right. my body is just not working. And so I got to a point where I recognized that I needed therapy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a very cognitive person. And so I was like, I can rationalize all of this away and it's right. not helping. I, mean, I can tell myself my baby's not going to have my same illness. It's very rare. What are the chances of that? And so I went to an art therapist where I could do deep work with art. I didn't have to talk about it. I could mm-hmm. really look deeper into mm-hmm. what was happening and she wasn't perinatal trained, but it was like just the process of being able to like really look at what I was feeling just being acknowledged that those feelings were real, those fears were real. That was really like, it made all of the difference. And when I stopped breastfeeding, my body started to relax a little bit. I stopped at 13 months and I would supplement with formula. Sometimes I was pumping a lot Mm -hmm. as well. It's
0: exhausting too.
1: Very exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm, yeah, so that was really like a huge part of my recovery was working with an art therapist. I went back to work around nine months. I think I took extended disability Mm -hmm. and I asked for accommodations and I got my accommodations to the best that they could. There was still an upstairs in the residential And so sometimes people were busy and patients needed to go to the bathroom. And there was only an upstairs, there was a downstairs and an upstairs, and somebody would be in the downstairs. And my colleagues would be like, No, you should have waited. Like we would have done this. And I'm like, well, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what else to do in -hmm. this situation. And so to make sense of what was going on for me, I just started researching everything I could Mm -hmm. about. Mm perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a research person. I love research. So was finding so much information. And when I found on the PSI website, like the checklist for risk factors, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that was me. That was me. That was right. me. That was me. So, this is at about nine months or,
0: or later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about nine mm-hmm. months.
1: Yeah. And this was also around the time that I started therapy mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so it started to make sense to me. I started to see that, like, oh, of course this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I just felt relieved at that point. And I, you know, because of my experience, I was like, I, I need to help people that, that are going through this. Like, I never want anybody to feel as alone as I did, because there was nobody, there was nobody that had gone through my experience. I knew nobody with dermatomyositis who had gone through pregnancy and postpartum. And so That was very isolating, very alone. I'm not a big social media person. And so, getting on groups and that sort of thing, I just wasn't interested. I was too exhausted. Sure. And so, that really kind of moved me into the perinatal space around helping moms and getting really interested in doing perinatal work. Um, of course, I had to go through my own recovery process because <laughs> um, right. that would have been, you know, not a good idea for me to have so much that I was still experiencing and be working with moms. Um, that would have been not good for anybody. Right. Um, so I continued working where I was until I decided to start a private practice. And I rented space for a little while, but I was very conscious about what I wanted in my own practice. And so when I, um, when I was able to rent my own space, it took me a year to find it because I had so much set criteria.
0: I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Elevator if, if needed, um, if if there was going to be a second floor ramps, accessible parking, accessible bathrooms, all of that. And so I found a building that used to be Baskin-Robbins headquarters and Baskin-Robbins had moved out. So it was just like these shelves and they were going to turn it into office space. So I got to design my office. Oh, perfect. And I got to, my doorways are wider than traditional doorways and everything else checked all the boxes. And so it was like worth the wait. It was everything that I that I needed. It was everything mm-hmm. that I wanted. And mm-hmm. I have a big space for my drama therapy studio. I have a smaller space for my uh, talk therapy work. And I let people know when I was working in the office, I'm doing all telehealth now.
2: You're right. And mm-hmm.
1: when I first started, I did a combo of in-office telehealth and home care. hmm mm-hmm. Because, again, I was wanting accessibility. I was wanting to make sure that anybody that needed perinatal services could get them. Um, And so now I'm working only telehealth, but I've kept my office because I'm like, this is my office that I made. (laughs) That's amazing. I created it. And the the, uh, perinatal psychiatrist that I work with doesn't have accessibility in her office office, but she does telehealth. And she always did telehealth as far Mm -hmm. as I know, and very blatantly clear on her website. Like I do on mine, she says about the accessibility
4: Mm -hmm. and
1: it's very important for clinicians to be very transparent about that. It's on my website. I have that my office is accessible for wheelchairs and strollers, Mm -hmm. um, because, It's so important that, that we are very like, even one step as a barrier after I couldn't not see steps anymore. I was like, Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to live there. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to go there. I wouldn't be able to live there. Even in trying to buy a house recently, we bought a house after we moved in six weeks was the lockdown after that. But my house has a ramp. My -hmm. house has, it's only one story. And so even those things are things you have to think about because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I could be doing okay now, but I don't know what could happen in a year or two years. Right. right. So it's making those decisions too. Sure. So, um,
0: I mean, uh, from all of you that you've been through, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're sharing all of this and also the perspective of, you know, a lot of therapists who have spaces need to think about these things. If you were to just think about just the stroller accessibility, even if you're not thinking about other disability accessibility issues, I mean, uh, there's a lot of those things are still uh, still needed, but certainly, you know, it, what would you, you know, for the therapists who are listening and also for the, the clients or patients who are listening, who are in a similar position and wanting more easily accessible spaces, what, what would your, checklist be for people to think of like, what should be included?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My first would be again, transparency. Mm -hmm. If somebody is going to be seeing you in your office, take the initiative to ask them first. Mm -hmm. I, I would tell my referrals, my potential clients, just want you to know that my office is accessible for any of your needs. So if you have a stroller, If you have any kind of medical disability, then my office is completely accessible. And if it wasn't, because I did at one point run an office for a little while that had one step. And I would say, I have one step leading up to my office. I don't know if that's going to be a challenge or not. I just want to make sure that you're aware so that we could make the choice of telehealth if you need, Mm -hmm. or so that if you need any help, Or if you decide that I'm not the right fit and that way, taking that initiative, I think goes a long way because it takes the labor off the person that is in the situation and makes you just think like, oh, they're thinking about that Mm -hmm. Um, because so often, you know, people with disabilities, we have to be the ones to ask all the questions. Mm -hmm. We have to be the ones to say, oh, do you have this? Do you have that? Can you accommodate this? And it gets exhausting after a while. You know, we live in a world that is for able-bodied people. It's complex. There's a lot of aspects to it, but accessibility is a human right. And so this is what we look at when we look at a social model of disability is that, you know, everybody needs help. And particularly in the postpartum period, support is the number one mm-hmm. thing, in my opinion, that is the number one thing of importance is sure. having support, offering telehealth. And I think a lot more people are doing that now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So i um, when I started my practice, it was a given. But now it's like, oh yeah, there's that option as mm-hmm. well. I would also say that um that don't make assumption. So just because somebody's not in a wheelchair doesn't mean that they don't have they don't have a physical disability. Right. Um, and that it could ebb and flow as well. Also, I would say that I'm um, for therapists particularly, research and education is really important, like mm-hmm. doing research. There's a um There's a researcher by the name of Leslie Tarasoff, and she does a lot of research on disability during the perinatal period.
3: Mm.
1: And so she's a great resource to, if you want to get more information about, about this as well, looking on her website and seeing the articles that she's written and the studies that she's done can be really helpful. So that education piece. As well. Um, And another is just being mindful of attitudinal barriers as well as physical barriers. So um, there can be like ableist microaggressions, um, such as, you know, oh, this person is a burden because they can't adapt to what my life is, what an Mm -hmm. able bodied environment is. There can be pity. Oh, I'm so like, oh, poor you. And um, you know, people encounter disability at different times in their life. Sure. So for me, I didn't need pity. I needed, I needed support, I needed help, I needed accommodation. Another is astonishment as well. Like, oh my gosh, like, Mm -hmm. how could you even get pregnant? Mm. How could you even, how could you even think about that? Like, oh wow, like that's amazing as though somebody that has a disability wouldn't even think about that. Also there for a lot of like doctor's offices. And I imagine some therapists too, for people with disabilities that are even um, thinking about, um, about pregnancy or postpartum, there's this idea of asexuality around, Oh, like it depends on what disability you have, but Oh, like, well, you know, you're not in this like space of wanting to have kids um, because you may not like how, ha- like for some people who are in wheelchairs, like, how do you even have sex? How would you even go about this? And so that's another assumption that people make around disability as well. For women in the perinatal period, a lot of times there's this assumption from doctors that disability equals C section. So, oh, sure. Sure. So there's going to be an automatic. Okay, we're going to have to have a C-section, and if that's not the desire for the birthing person to have, then you know it's like a lot of times people can feel pressure as well around. Okay, I'm going to have to have a C-section. Mm-hmm.
0: Is, a is that was that part of what you had to encounter as well?
1: Um, no, my doctor was very understanding. My desires and my wishes, um, but I did end up having a C-section, not because of disability, but um, but for other reasons. My, I did end up having a C-section, mm-hmm. and so I think it's also really important for therapists and providers to um to not be in that expert role, to be in that role of curiosity, to be in that role of like what resources have you looked into? What can I support you with? Can I give you some, can I look for you and mm-hmm. help you find resources? And then it's up to the person to decide whether or not they want to utilize these resources. And that's a, that's an empowerment model. That's very much a, you are the expert in your life mm-hmm. and I am here to support you in that as well just in larger terms too, like my greatest desire is like for all medical offices to have a hydraulic examination table where it's at the level of where a wheelchair would be, where you can just move over to it and then it go up for the doctor to do the exam. Mm -hmm. That is my dream. I would love if every doctor's office has that. I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure I'm not going to be like I couldn't be the inventor of it.
0: No, but, um, I, there, there is one actually, because I, I, I went to the doctor's office and they had me sit in what looked like a table and the whole thing moved up and then fold it out. And I amazing. was tripping out about it.
1: <laughs> that is my dream. Yeah, That is my dream. And also I would, I'm um, for therapists. I would, this just came to me as well. A lot of people may, may have, and again, this is question of curiosity, may have medical trauma. Mm -hmm. So I've had adverse experiences medically where, you know, I've met with a new doctor and they see me as a case and not Mm -hmm. as a person. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, I've never met a case like you. And I'm like, so you're immediately sort of like objectified in some way. Your humanity is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So those would be, I mean, Again, I'm the expert in my life. I'm not the expert in the whole world of disability, but, Mm -hmm. you know, these are things that I think about, um, Mm -hmm. in regards to how can people start thinking about this and start looking at, you know, it's like when we look at a different perspective, when we really look at what is, what is something that can be accessible, Mm -hmm. what can be accommodating, how Mm -hmm. can I support anybody it's just important to start thinking about, like, how do I shut people out? How do the people that I'm referring to shut people? Like, Does the acupuncturist that I refer people to have accessibility? Does the pelvic floor ph- ph- physical therapist have accessibility? And so really kind of looking at those things as well. And because we may not know that. Right, right. For sure.
0: Uh, Well, Rachel, you've given us so much of your time, and I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer. (laughs) There's so much in here. I just appreciate you so much for sharing your experience and giving these really important and helpful insights to both providers and clients and patients who maybe didn't know that they could advocate for themselves to, to hear all of these things that they can ask for. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com.